the weekly appellate report for April 14th, 2017. This week's show regards two high court cases, one pending in the California Supreme Court and one recently filed out of the U.S. Supreme Court. Adam Hoffman, a partner with Hanson Bridget LLP, joins us first to talk about the state case, a battle between Santa Barbara citizens and the city over whether a certain electric utility surcharge represents a tax, or rather a portion of the local power provider's franchise fee, which is then passed along to the consumers. The distinction is critical as under the California Constitution, local taxes must be approved by citizens before they're imposed, which this charge was not. Mr. Hoffman, who filed an amicus brief in the matter, explains why the charge should be deemed part of the utility's franchise fee, also explains why the outcome here will meaningfully impact California cities, especially those dependent on revenue generated by franchise agreements. Then, Ben Davidson of the Davidson Law Group will unpack a recent SCOTUS ruling that rendered latches unavailable for defendants in patent suits. It's not an entirely unexpected move, as it follows a similar ruling in the copyright context from a few years ago. The court here, in an 8-to-1 decision, held that a limitations period in the relevant statute rendered latches practically unnecessary and legally impermissible. Mr. Davidson, along with Justice Breyer, the court's lone dissenter, disagrees. Mr. Davidson says the court's ruling upsets over a century of patent jurisprudence unnecessarily and unduly leaves patent defendants vulnerable to belated suits, that statutory limitations period notwithstanding. Before we get to my guest, I'd like to remind you first, as always, that CLE Credit is available for listeners of the podcast to find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. With that, let's get to my discussion with Adam Hoffman. Very happy now to welcome to the podcast Mr. Adam Hoffman, partner with Hanson Bridget, LLP, who filed an amicus brief in the matter we're discussing this morning. Mr. Hoffman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Okay, so we're talking about uh, Jacks et al. versus the city of Santa Barbara, a case which heard oral arguments before the California Supreme Court last week, and one that presents what might have first seemed a fairly technical question, just how a 1% surcharge on an uh, electricity bill should be characterized, whether it should be characterized as a tax or or something else. Um, though technical, the question certainly is of importance to the parties here, and I, I imagine cities and citizens and utility providers around the state. So the high court is taking a look. Um, let's start at, at the uh, at the beginning here. There's a, a practical consideration that makes this question particularly important as to whether this 1% should be deemed a tax or, or something else, and that's a California constitutional provision created by a ballot proposition Proposition 218 a few years ago, uh, limiting the ways in which local governments can create new taxes, as I understand it. So could you describe to me the prescriptions of that ballot measure turned constitutional provision and how they weigh in here? So uh, Proposition 218 was enacted by the voters in 1996, and it has kind of two major um, sections. The, the, the first and the one that's applicable here is that it imposes a voter approval requirement on any sort of new taxes. And um, it divides up the universe of taxes into general taxes and special taxes, general taxes being uh, those that are um, imposed for the purpose of generating general revenue. And special taxes are those for which um, the taxes is imposed for uh, to fund a specific program or or a specific set of programs. Um, and there's actually a higher voter approval requirement for special taxes. Um, and then the other piece of Proposition 218 is that imposes a, a substantive and procedural limits on fees and assessments. Um, but that really doesn't have any application to this case. Okay. So the main application, the main importance is just if it is something as deemed a tax, it needs voter approbation before it can go into being. 
Yeah, that's it exactly. And and one of the tricks with Proposition 218, and it and it says dog to the uh, resulting jurisprudence is that um, the the drafters never bothered to define what a tax was um, when they when they imposed this voter approval requirement, um, and they've sort of fixed that in Proposition two, uh, 26 in 2010. But anything that uh, that government did in the interim um, is subject to this sort of uncertainty as to what was and wasn't a tax. Okay. Well, then it sounds like it's helpful that the, the California Supreme Court will be weighing in here. And then let's let's get into the facts of this case. Uh, who, who are the parties here? Uh, why did uh, Mr. Roland Jacks uh, sue the, the city of Santa Barbara? Sure. So so Mr. Jacks, as I understand, you know, I've never met him, but I gather that he's uh, he's both a citizen of the city of Santa Barbara and a, and a hotelier there. Um, he owns the Hotel Santa Barbara in town. Um, and so, you know, as a, as a citizen, as a business owner, um, I gather that he pays, uh, you know, it's natural to assume he pays, uh, an electricity bill for his, uh, his properties every month. And, um, as part of that, um, he pays this 1% surcharge, um, that was actually imposed by the local electric utility, Southern California Edison, um, in order to comply with uh, direction from the California Public Utilities Commission. Um, so they have this, um, they, they take a portion of the city's franchise fee. Um, and separate it out as this surcharge uh, that shows up on all the utility customer bills. And uh, Mr. Jack's apparently one of those customers and was uh, was upset to find this charge on his bill and blame the city and wanted to invalidate it. As being a tax that hadn't received voter approval. That's exactly right. Okay, then um, how did uh, how did this case come out in the lower courts? I understand it. The second appellate district weighed in in favor of, of the plaintiffs. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, the, the second district found that the um, the surcharge portion of the franchise fee, the, the portion of the franchise fee being sort of segregated out and charged on the utility customer bills, um, was actually a tax and not a franchise fee. And so that was uh, there's no question that there was no voter approval for the the franchise fee. And so um, under Proposition 218, having determined that that was a tax, uh, the the result flowed naturally that that it was invalid. And um, so the the city took it up to the Supreme Court. What uh, what was the reasoning of, of the intermediate court? The second district took this from uh, kind of three separate perspectives. Um, the the first one is just the fact that the that the one percent extra one percent shows up as a surcharge um, on the customers' bills, um, and so it looks like a utility user tax. Um, you know anybody who's paid a, a utility bill and, and really stopped to look at it knows that there are a bunch of different elements to the to the bill that they pay every month, and you know some of those things are taxes, and they show up as, as kind of itemized pieces of the of the total. And in Santa Barbara, the the surcharge here showed up along with a series of taxes. I think that the court was persuaded that in fact that's uh, how it was operating that the the city had set this charge, and that ratepayers were paying it directly um, on their bills. The second piece of this had to do with the um, the way that the that the franchise fee was negotiated. Um, there was some uh, history here of the city having a 1% franchise fee, uh, then negotiating for a 2% franchise fee. Um, and then during the negotiations, there's kind of a back and forth between Southern California Edison and the city and the California Public Utilities Commission over um, how that uh, added 1% would be um passed on to customers, you know, uh, like any utility in Southern California, Edison doesn't uh, pay any of its bills out of its own pocket. It, it ultimately finds a way to pass those costs on to customers. And of course, that 
was going to be no different for the franchise fee. It was just a question of how it was done. But because of the negotiating history, there's a period in time where um, where the city appeared to have accepted a one a continued one percent franchise fee. Um, and so from the from the court's perspective, the second district, uh, the second one, you know, the second percent, kind of the second half of the franchise fee that, that is being challenged here uh, was really kind of gratuitous. It was uh, revenue generating. It wasn't the city didn't view it. According to the second district, the city didn't view it as, um, you know, kind of compensation for the fran- franchise. It was just extra money. Um, so that was another reason to find that it was a tax and not a franchise fee. Um, and then the, the third item here is just that the the franchise fee set by the city of Santa Barbara at two percent um, exceeded the kind of prevailing franchise free uh, franchise fees in the region. Uh, those charged by other cities and, and the county of Santa Barbara um, for for utilities in those districts. And there's reasons for that. Um, but basically, you know, again, kind of taking the view that from the city's perspective, this was not really a franchise fee. It wasn't really compensation um, for use of, of the city's franchise. It was just gratuitous revenue generation. And, and the court felt that was revealed by the fact that other cities in the area only charged, uh, you know, around 1% for their franchise fees instead of two, as in Santa Barbara. Okay, then with, with that all laid out, let's get into the points made in your amicus brief. Now, you filed this brief contending that the the Court of Appeals got it wrong here. Um, now, their opinion was a, a 3-0, fairly concise one. They didn't seem to struggle with this question too much, but uh, let's walk through why you think they, they might have been incorrect in some of their, uh, their reasonings here. One point that you make is that uh, there's a significant difference between franchise fees and, and taxes, and, and the Court of Appeals didn't really reckon too much with that difference. Uh, in your opinion, how do the fees and, and taxes differ in ways that uh, should impact the outcome here? Sure. So, you know, I think I think there's, um, I mean, just to take a step back, you know, I really think this case turned to a certain extent on the, the superficial appearance of the similarity between uh, the franchise fee surcharge and the utility user's tax. Um, but, but there are, you know, as, as you say, there are some real differences. The, the first one is just uh, foundational, and that is that a utility user tax is literally a tax. Um, it's something that, uh, that the government sets unilaterally um, as a matter of, of legislation. Um, and by contrast, a, a franchise fee of, of any size is something that is negotiated between the local agency, you know, in this case the city, um, and the franchisee, the, the utility or, or other um, organization that is going to use um, the city's public rights of way and, and other, um, you know, kind of public property in order to conduct their private business. Um, and so there's a long history in California of treating franchise fees differently from taxes. Um, and again, you know, I really think it's the, the, the crux of it um, and the crux of the difference there is that franchise fees are negotiated compensation. They're like, uh, it's, it's something closer to rent, um, whereas taxes are imposed. Um, unilaterally by government. So safe to say that franchise fees and taxes do differ, then you move on to argue why this surcharge should be deemed a part of a franchise fee rather than a tax. So uh, on one point, you note that, um, as you say, the uh, the city, as the Court of Appeals saw it, was willing to grant the, the franchise rights for a 1% fee um, in the, the Court of Appeals' opinion. And so 
the uh, there wasn't any sort of bargain for exchange. It didn't seem like a, a franchise fee agreement. The additional one percent that was passed on to consumers. Why? Why, in your opinion, is that is that not uh, an accurate representation of what's going on here? Yeah, I, I, to me, this was just a misreading of the record. Um, truthfully, uh, the you know because I mean you know again, pardon me for doing it, but taking a step back, I, I don't think anybody involved in this disagrees with the fundamental premise that I just you know, sort of articulated this idea that franchise fees and taxes are, are different. Um, the issue is whether this was a franchise fee, whether this, you know, 1% uh, half of the franchise fee uh, was a franchise fee or, or a tax. And, and as you say, the, the, the Court of Appeals sort of got hung up on what I described earlier in terms of the negotiating history here. Um, and so, you know, to my mind, at least, you know, really misread the record because it's true that there's a moment in time, you know, you have this 1999 franchise agreement negotiated between the city and Southern California Edison. Um, and Southern California Edison had been, um, as I understand it, at least, uh, you know, providing electric service in the city of Santa Barbara for, for many, many years um, under a previous existing um, franchise agreement. It was time uh, to renegotiate that agreement. And right from the beginning, the city of Santa Barbara wanted 2%. And said so and negotiated for 2%. And that was always its goal, uh, was to get that 2%. What you run into is a little bit of a, um, a quirk of California public utility operation, um, which is uh, number one, uh, the way that California utilities set their prices, the prices that their customers pay. Um, it all has to be approved by the California Public Utility Commission. And the Public Utility Commission has a sort of long-standing policy that limits the extent to which uh, franchise fees can be rolled into what's called the general rate case. So when a utility goes out uh, to set its customer charges, this is called the general rate case, where sort of all their operational costs get rolled up and divided out in, in a way that the, the PUC thinks is fair uh, amongst their customers. And so uh, beyond the general rate case, there are other procedures that um, utilities can use to recover costs that are a little unusual or that come up only periodically or whatever it is. Under a longstanding PUC policy, um, any franchise fee in excess of 1% uh, within a given jurisdiction within a particular city can't be included by the utility in its general rate case. It has to be accounted for separately. So you have this situation where the city of Santa Barbara is looking to get 2% for its franchise fee. It has statutory or, forgive me, a, a constitutional authority uh, to impose a 2% franchise fee or really any franchise fee it can negotiate for. And Southern California Edison is willing to pay the 2% because, you know, as I said, ultimately they don't really care that much because their customers are going to end up footing the bill no matter how it's uh, uh, transmitted to them. Um, but the PUC is concerned that it not be part of the general rate case, that it not show up, that extra 1%, not show up as part of um, the the sort of regular volumetric uh, rates that Southern California Edison charges. Instead, under the PUC's policy, this has to be carved out and charged only to uh, Santa Barbara residents, and it has to be um, charged to them as a separate line item that shows up on their bill. And part of this makes sense. I mean, in a way, if you're going to have a city like Santa Barbara charge uh, a franchise fee that's more than its neighboring cities, 
Um, there's something I think, you know, legitimately unfair about passing a portion of that cost on to the residents of neighboring cities that don't have that higher franchise fee. You know, it sort of makes sense in that regard. Um, you'd want the residents of Santa Barbara to pay the, the freight of that kind of, you know, uh, increased franchise fee. So this is the mechanism by which the PUC does that. That's a long way of getting around to the point that Southern California Edison said, yes, fine, we'll, we'll pay you the 2%. You city are asking for 2%. We'll pay it. We don't mind. But we have to get PUC approval for this, and we have to do it in the way that they tell us. And so as part of the 1999 franchise agreement, you have this moment in time where the city continues to accept 1% as the franchise fee for a period of three years while um, while Southern California Edison goes to the PUC and tries to get approval for the additional 1%. And so if there was any kind of problem um, with, the, uh, with the PUC approving that 2% franchise fee, the 1% franchise fee would stay in place for three years and then would continue year to year after that um, while the parties tried to work out a new deal, basically. Um, because of the um, the sort of energy crisis in California, it's now kind of ancient history, but I remember it well enough, um, in, in the early aughts, um, there, there was a lot of uh, just general turmoil in the electricity industry in California um, all around this time. So you know, you've got this period, 1999 to 2002 is when, the 1% sort of continues contractually while um, while Southern California Edison takes up the matter with PUC. The Enron scandal hits. There's turmoil in the electricity market. Um, so the city and Southern California Edison kind of kicked the can down the road a few years um, and continued on with this 1% under the contract, always provisionally with the understanding that Southern California Edison is going to go to the PUC and try to get approval for the additional 1%. The, the net effect of that, I think, from the from the Court of Appeals standpoint is it looked like for several years the city was willing to accept 1% for the franchise. And that's really a, a, a very superficial reading of what was going on there. Um, the truth of the matter is the city was willing to accept it provisionally um, to ensure that electricity service continued to be provided in the city. But in terms of the long term, um, the city was always looking for a 2% fee for a 30-year franchise. And I think it's important, you know, just taking yet another step back to recognize that franchise fees are not like renting an apartment or renting a restaurant or something. You know, there's just a huge amount of investment that goes in by utilities uh, for these franchises. And so they're not of any value for three years. You don't get a three-year franchise fee. It's not useful. You get 30-year franchise fees. You get, you know, 50-year franchise fees because that justifies the investment by the utility in the related infrastructure. So the, this provisional moment where one percent was acceptable, I think, um, really doesn't reflect what the what the city and, and, and Southern California Edison intended, which is a two percent franchise for a thirty-year franchise agreement. Interesting, but it, it sounds like for the Court of Appeals, that stopgap, that three-year period where the one percent was enough to to hold up the agreement. It sounds like the opinion sort of hinges on it, notwithstanding the fact that, as you say, it sounds like from the beginning, two percent was the eventual goal of the the arrangement. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, and, and the city sort of, or excuse me, the, the Court of Appeals sort of looked at that and said, well, if they were willing to accept 1% for a few years, then they really, you know, only saw 1% as the, as the compensation for the franchise and the rest of it was just gratuitous revenue. And again, I just think that's, that's just inaccurate. Okay. Now you also take, take exception with the Court of Appeals reasoning 
over the um, the way in which the, the additional one percent is passed on to consumers, and that's in in the form of a surcharge. It's not rolled into the rate; it's sort of passed on directly to them wholesale. I suppose maybe it's the appearance of that pass along that makes the court of appeals say it more nearly resembles a tax. Why do you feel that they're uh, they're incorrect on on this point as well? Well, there's a, there's a couple of different reasons for that. I mean, the first one, you know, again, I, I really think that is the genesis of this whole dispute. Um, and so in a way, it's not surprising that the, that the Court of Appeal kind of focused on that. I, I imagine that's what Mr. Jack's focused on as well. But the, the reality is, you know, again, first off, that surcharge was not something that the city ever wanted or cared about or negotiated for or required. The fact that the um, that half of the franchise fee was rolled into Southern California Edison's general rates and the other half was passed on to customers as this, you know, line item surcharge was all at the direction of Southern California Edison and that to satisfy the California Public Utility Commission. So in that sense, I think it's a critical difference because it's not something that the city is requiring. I mean, all definitions of tax, um, including now under Proposition 26, turn on the idea that the, that the government is imposing the payment. You know, it's a, it's a payment that the government is requiring. And here, the city would have been perfectly happier, uh, happy, you know, in, in retrospect, probably much happier if Southern California had, Edison had, had rolled this into their general rate case, but the PUC wouldn't, wouldn't allow that. So from that perspective, it's, you know, this is a, this is a dictate of, of the PUC and of, of a private utility and therefore not a, not a tax in the way that a uh, utility user's tax is something that the city sets legislatively on its own, um, in order to generate revenue. The, the other piece of this that's interesting, and, you know, we get a little bit, um, the wording becomes kind of technical and, and, and a little bit, uh, philosophical sounding. But I think the principle is actually very concrete. And that is this. The utility users tax is legally imposed on the users of utilities. Okay. So the city sets its UUT. It becomes a legal obligation of any person that purchases electricity service in the city. If the city, uh, wants to collect, it goes after the customer. If the customer doesn't pay, the consequences all fall on the customer. I think there are provisions for, you know, direct collections actions for placing a lien on the customer's home, that kind of thing, right? So, so all of the, what we describe as the legal incidence of the utility user's tax falls on the individual customer in the city. That has to be contrasted with the, um, the franchise fee here. The, the surcharge is passed on to the customer. But the legal incidence, the, the, the debt, the obligation, is all in Southern California Edison. So, for example, if somehow or other the um, surcharge is not being paid by, a, by an electric customer or by a group of electric customers, the consequences are all for Southern California Edison. The city could take away uh, Southern California Edison's franchise or, you know, sue to force Southern California Edison to, to make up the, the difference, pay the fees that its customers aren't paying. Whatever series of uh, enforcement actions might occur, they all fall on Southern California Edison. And again, that's because it was always from the city's perspective, it was this franchise fee, which is the, the contractual obligation of the utility. It is not a, a legal obligation of, of the citizens of, of Santa Barbara. Appreciate that uh, philosophical discursion into uh, governing structures and and taxing and and, and such. Um, one more point that you bring up in your brief is regards the the court of appeals noting that the the, the size of the surcharge is is different and larger than the prevailing 
rates in the area, and that that fact also points in the direction of it being a tax. Why? Uh, why do you think that that is not not the case? Yeah, that that is a is another kind of uh, to me superficial observation that the court of appeal is making. Um, you know, and and I think it it ties together with the court's perception that the city was willing to accept one percent for a while. You know, it's sort of it's two sides of the same coin. But again, when you're talking about uh, defining a tax um, or or identifying a tax under Proposition 218, um, or even later uh, now post 2010 under Proposition 26, there is nothing um, in there that talks about the size of a charge, um, and certainly nothing to suggest um, that that the magnitude of a, of a given charge would have some impact on whether it was considered a tax or not. There's just no authority um, for that idea. Um, and, and to the contrary, historically, franchise fees, again, because they were this sort of contractual negotiated compensation for the use of a, of a public right in a private business, um, Traditionally, they were awarded to the highest bidder um, in the same way that, you know, that, that a city, um, you know, uh, attempts to minimize its costs and maximize its, uh, the value of its assets and services. Um, it's out there in the, in the market, in a sense. And, um, and of course, it has a responsibility to negotiate for the highest price you can get. The trick here is that there's a, a couple of statutes in California, the, the Brofton Act, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and the, and the Franchise Act of 1937. The impact of which is to uh, generally limit the franchise fees that general law cities in California can charge uh, to 1%. So you have um, just a, another quick step back here. There's two kinds of cities in California, charter cities that have a, 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 literally a city charter, um, which acts as kind of a constitution for city lawmaking, um, and general law cities, cities that exist under California uh, general law and have no charter. The limits of the Brofton Act and the Franchise Act of 1937 uh, apply to uh, general law cities and limit their franchise fees to 1%. Those laws do not apply to charter cities. And in fact, uh, as a matter of California constitutional law, um, charter cities can impose uh, a franchise fee of any level they want. So the, the effect of that is that it's, it's a natural result of those state laws, which govern general law cities and counties, um, which make up a majority of uh, California municipal jurisdiction, that if you look at any area, the prevailing rate for franchises is going to be 1% because it's capped. But under the Constitution, charter cities like Santa Barbara are allowed to charge more. And so what the what the court does here, um, in a sense, is in, in its Prop 218 analysis by focusing on prevailing rates in the area, it, it, it sort of impliedly repeals the power of charter cities to charge more than general law cities are, are permitted to do um, under the Constitution. And, you know, that really isn't, is both wrong under, you know, sort of general principles of, of uh, statutory and constitutional interpretation. Um, and, you know, and again, there's, there's just nothing in the background of Proposition 218, nothing in the background of any of these anti-tax um, measures that supports that view, that, that, um, that the voters intended to put a limit on the franchise fee power of charter cities. There's nothing there. Okay. Um, in, in the ways that we've discussed, you've, in your amicus brief, leveled a pretty comprehensive argumentative uh, fusel out here against the Court of Appeals reasoning, but as a 
A good attorney, I'm sure you've identified the, the strongest points on the other side. If you could present what you think the, the most compelling argument is for, for the other side here for why this should be deemed a tax, uh, what, uh, what is it? Well, you know, I, you know, I, I'm a I'm a partisan, so you know, my feeling is, you know, Mr. Jack should just go home and pay his taxes. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm joking, but uh, no, I, I think I think there's a, a couple of ways in which this lines up in in Mr. Jack's favor, and to some extent, I have the benefit of having watched oral argument, heard the the questions from the um, justices, which I know we'll talk about in a minute. But you know, the the two lines that I see for him, um, you know, it. The Proposition 218, the purpose of the of the constitutional provisions that it enacted, uh, was to limit the power of local government to um, to impose new revenue measures, to expand revenue measures um, without kind of voter consent. Um, and there was a perception in the 90s um, that that governments were running amok and setting all these fees and assessments and other sort of taxes um, that and and were finding sort of creative ways of avoiding. Uh, Proposition 13, um, you know, and, and, and still uh, uh, taxing their citizens uh, to death, so to speak. Um, uh, it's not a view that I, I've ever bought, but, you know, again, it's uh, it's something that, that people believe and, and they persuaded the voters that they were right. Um, and so Proposition 218 also has baked into it this idea that you should, you know, kind of liberally construe its terms in in favor of taxpayers and against local government in a way that makes it hard for local government to expand its revenue measures. So from a just kind of policy standpoint, um, there's a sense in which any time the government is pulling in more dollars on, on a kind of absolute basis, that the courts need to be careful and, and scrutinize that. And so I think that plays in, in Mr. Jackson's favor. And then, you know, again, just the fact that the, that the net effect of this, um, even though it wasn't at city direction, the, the fact remains from the taxpayer standpoint um, that they've got an extra 1% being added onto their bill as a separate line item that isn't being charged to other uh, Southern California Edison customers um, and all because, you know, the greedy city, so to speak. Um, and so I think, you know, when you throw that into the hopper, along with the policy objectives of Proposition 218, it starts to sound like, uh, you know, this, this should be considered a tax and, and uh, limited by, by voter consent. Summed up, what, how would you describe the, the implications here, what uh, what exactly is is at stake? What um, if this case goes the way the the other way here uh, against what you propose in your amicus brief? What uh, what problems arise? And are those sort of cabined because of Proposition Twenty Six? Does that answer the question that is presented here? So only that the activities between those certain number of years are are really implicated. First, I don't think that this issue is is really controlled by Proposition Twenty Six, and if anything, um, I worry a little bit that an adverse uh, decision here, a case that goes against the city, um, will have some some uh, negative implications for the future of Proposition 26 jurisprudence um, because uh, Proposition 26, uh, enacted by the voters in 2010, uh, with the express goal of you know, kind of further tightening down any perceived loopholes in Proposition 218, set the first constitutional definition of quote-unquote a tax. And one of the express exceptions to the idea of a tax, one of the things that the law now says is clearly not a tax, is a charge for the use of government property. And whereas um, several of the other uh, exceptions to the constitutional definition of tax uh, turn on 
um, cost causation. Uh, that is, that they be designed to recover the cost of a program or a benefit or whatever else the government is doing. The property exception, the exception for use of, of public property, um, is expressly, expressly uh, uh, omits um, to have that, that kind of cost causation or, or any sort of proportionality requirement. So in effect, um, you know, the, the local government under Proposition 26 should be able to charge whatever the market will bear uh, for the use of its property. And again, this makes sense from a, from a public policy standpoint. You know, you, um, if, if a government is, un, is operating a park, you know, you don't want, uh, you know, or, or a, some kind of recreational facility, you don't want them to have to demonstrate that their ticket prices are precisely calibrated to the cost of running the park. You know, it's, it's a, it's a public good. It's public property. They ought to be able to make profitable use of it. Um, you know, and, and as one of the uh, advocates argued uh, at the Supreme Court, you know, are you going to require uh, parking meter fees to be cost-related? Uh, cost um, you know, the answer seems to be pretty clearly not. Um, so that in turn, you know, even though this is not a Prop 26 case, it predates Proposition 26, um, the principle is the same. Um, you've got a situation where the local government is charging for the use of its property, its franchise, I mean, it's public rights of way. And somebody is coming in and saying, well, you're charging too much. And so the Constitution prohibits that. And so, you know, I definitely worry about the implications um, of this case uh, for for future, uh, you know, and, and for other kinds of uh, property use charges. Um, but, you know, there's there's a more immediate and practical effect. This is something that, you know, because, because the, the brief that I wrote was on behalf of the League of California Cities, this was sort of our interest. Um, and that is that there are some cities that, that really rely on franchise fee revenue as a, a significant portion of their operating revenue. Um, you know, we listed a few of them, but, you know, some of these like Needles, um, Lodi, Avrin, uh, Adelanto, um, you know, where you have 30% or more than 20% of their operating revenue comes out of franchise fees. Um, it's just the nature of their local government that they have limited, um, you know, their property values are low by and large. Um, there, uh, you know, there's not a lot of business there, some of these smaller communities. And so, you know, one of the ways that they keep the lights on, so to speak, uh, is, is through franchise fees. And so we worry about what happens to them um, if it turns out that there are constitutional limits on, on their franchise fees. Maybe one last one to, to close up, having had a chance to, to listen to the arguments in this case. How receptive were the justices to, uh, to either one side's arguments or the others? How, um, how might you kind of forecast how uh, the court might potentially come come down on this question you know it's i knew you're going to ask me that and, and i even had it in on my mind as i was watching the auction it's, it's uh, i i'm i'm not a, bet, a betting man in general and i'm certainly not going to bet on the result in this case um you know the the, the justices had difficult questions for for both parties um i was i was a little bit surprised at at um the extent to which a couple of uh, a couple of justices, Justice Chin really sticks out in my mind, um, sort of became preoccupied with the idea that courts must have some role in under the Constitution in evaluating uh, the reasonableness of the franchise fee. And, and to me, that really, uh, you know, I, I worry that that's an analytical uh, skip in the process, you know, where, where the real question here is whether this is a franchise fee or a tax, and... The, the justices' questions almost went to the idea that, well, you know, even if it is a franchise fee, don't we have some role 
in limiting it or in, in evaluating the reasonableness of it. And that seemed like a, a strange direction to go for me. Um, you know, again, because of this idea that franchise fees are not taxes. It is only taxes that are limited by the Constitution. And there's this, you know, extended history where franchise fees are, are not only not taxes, but are in fact, you know, expressly to be granted on, on a, you know, sort of market basis. And so, you know, to me, the, the, the city offered a, you know, I think a pretty clear answer to that, which was, you know, basically that the, the college have, have no role in that. And that it's a market driven process and that the, the market will, will set what is and isn't reasonable. The court shouldn't sort of wade in on that, but the, <laughs> The district, excuse me, the justice has actually seemed a little bit put off by that answer, you know, as if their, um, their authority was being uh, unreasonably questioned or something. So I, I was a little bit concerned uh, with what I saw with that. On the other hand, um, Chief Justice Tenzil Sakoye and, um, and Justice Corrigan both seemed to understand um, what to me was the, you know, one of the fundamental mistakes in the, in the Court of Appeal opinion, which is that there was no agreement for a long-term franchise for 1%. That the agreement was always, uh, you know, two percent franchise fee for a thirty-year franchise, and um, they seemed to, to so their question suggested that they got that. So that that had me, uh, you know, kind of feeling hopeful on that front at least. Um, moving back to to things that gave me pause, you know, there was on the one hand this idea that maybe the court has some role in evaluating the reasonableness of franchise fees, um, and then there was also this idea that the customers. Um, the Southern California Edison customers are paying this surcharge and not getting a benefit. And shouldn't that be considered a tax then? Um, and, you know, and in some ways that, that again is consistent with, um, where, where Proposition 26 has taken us, this idea that, um, anything the government charges is a tax unless it confers a, a you know, sort of roughly proportional benefit on, on the payers, um, uh, that, that helps pay for the program or the benefit or whatever it is. But that, that, that idea, um, and it, and it comes up again and again in, in the history of these, uh, constitutional amendments, Proposition 218, um, the, the limits on, on fees and assessments that I mentioned earlier, um, focus heavily on, um, on a much narrower version even of, of customer proportionality. And, and so, so that, that idea of proportionality is out there, but I don't think it has any application. And I think Proposition 26 confirms this. That there's no application for um, for franchise fees, no application for charges for the use of government property. Um, you know, so I, I'm, I'm forgive me, I'm sort of editorializing as I as I think about the the justices' comments. But you know, that was kind of what was on my mind as I was listening to them. It was like this idea that you know there there ought to be some kind of proportionality, there ought to be some kind of benefit conferred. Um, there ought to be some kind of role in the government in, in supervising these franchise fees. I, uh, I worry that that's just kind of, well, it's inconsistent with the whole idea of the franchise fee from my perspective. So it's, uh, to, to sum up, I guess, it, you know, the, the justices had questions that were more hostile in my mind to some of the basic principles of the city's argument than I expected. Um, but as I also admitted, I'm, I'm thoroughly partisan on this issue. So. Um, any question that was <laughs> hostile to the city side was going to feel wrong to me. Um, but they, they had tough questions for, um, for Mr. Jackson's attorneys as well. And, you know, it's, it, um, I'm frankly holding my breath on this one because, um, it, it's not clearly a slam dunk for anybody in this case. 
yeah, as, as you say, reading tea leaves in those contexts is always a fairly perilous practice. So we appreciate you indulging us uh, in that regard. We'll, we'll get our answer soon enough here in the next couple of months and you can uh, breathe perhaps either a sigh of relief or uh, mutter something, <laughs> something else. But uh, for the time being, Adam Hoffman, thanks very much uh, for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Adam Hoffman, a partner with Hanson Bridget LLP. We'll move now to my discussion with Ben Davidson at the Davidson Law Group on the recent SCOTUS ruling rendering patent defendants unable to avail themselves of the defense of latches. We're very happy to welcome to the program now Mr. Ben Davidson. He heads up a small boutique law firm here in Los Angeles, the Davidson Law Group, and has a, a wealth of experience in patent infringement uh, litigation. Mr. Davidson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're regarding a case out of the U.S. Supreme Court, SCA Hygiene Products First First Quality Baby Products, it's a patent infringement action. Um, and principally, the, the issue here, as you, you write about in a column that you contributed to the, the Daily Journal newspaper, is that this ruling pertaining to the, the equitable defense of latches will leave patent infringement defendants without that defense. The court came down saying that in, in actions like this, the defense of latches is not available, and we'll get into more uh, why that uh, that ruling was rendered and why you think it could be a concern. Um, but first, maybe let's just unpack exactly what this defense is. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with it, but what what is it and when is the defense of latches typically employed? Well, the defense of latches is available in a wide variety of cases, uh, and it's it's typically used when a plaintiff delays in filing a lawsuit, and it's an unreasonable length of delay that causes some kind of harm to the defendant. Um, and it's it's really a defense uh, developed in the courts of equity when there was this division between uh, courts of law and courts of equity to prevent a plaintiff from being rewarded, in effect, for sitting on his rights. So uh, a very good example of that might be if... if um, someone has built a house on your property and you have done nothing about it and years go by, um, you may be barred by latches from saying, gee, you, years ago you, you built a house on my property and I didn't do anything about it. Uh, and so that's this equitable defense of latches that has been developed. Okay, now in this particular context, the context of patent infringement actions that seek damages for um, infringement, I take it that this defense has been used in, in cases like this dating back quite a long while, correct? And that includes cases that, that came before, as we talk about the 1952 Patent Act, which features prominently in this litigation and uh, which had introduced a, a statute of limitations. Well, that's right. So latches has been available in patent cases for more than a century. And uh, courts continued to assume it, it was available after the 1952 Act. And it's true that the act did provide a six-year statute of limitations in uh, 35 U.S.C. Section 286. But as the dissent in the uh, Supreme Court's opinion pointed out uh, by uh, Justice Breyer, that that wasn't the first time there was a statute of limitations. In fact, there there, there was a statute of limitations, six-year statute of limitations in 1897 uh, that applied in uh, courts of equity. And, and that, that statute is very similar and said 
profits and damages sought in patent cases uh, can only be sought for a period of six years prior to the filing. As you say, that was not the first time that the statute of limitations had been, had been introduced in this context when the, the act was passed. Correct. Okay. Um, maybe digging into the, the weeds a little bit here and talking about the parties before the court, we have uh, the petitioner, SEA Hygiene and First Quality Baby Products. Uh, tell me a little bit about who these parties are and how they ended up uh, in litigation here. So uh, they are both uh, manufacturers of adults incontinence products. SCA Hygiene is the patent owner, first quality baby products, the defendant. And um, in late 2003, SCA sent a letter to first quality baby products and said, we believe you are infringing this patent. If you are of the opinion that you do not infringe, please tell us why. And so first quality wrote back and said, we think your patent is invalid and here's why. Uh, and that's the last that first quality heard from SCA hygiene. Uh, SCA hygiene took the information first quality had provided really the patent, uh, the prior patent information and went to the patent trademark office and it initiated a reexamination of its own patent. It asked the patent office to take another look at its patent in light of that prior art from first quality. And uh, after a, a number of years, I think it was uh, four years or three and a half years later, the patent office issued uh, a reexamination certificate. They uh, confirmed the validity of the patent. And then for reasons that are not clear in the record, SCA waited another three years before filing a lawsuit against First Quality. And so there was a period of seven-year delay from the time it had sent the cease and desist letter to the time when First Quality was sued for infringement. And First Quality, in the meantime, had invested hundreds of millions of dollars in the technologies that SCA said were infringing. And that's why it raised this latches defense to the the damage claim, which it, which it naturally uh, won. Right. So, yeah, the case at the district court level was dismissed based on the latches defense, and that dismissal was affirmed at the, the federal circuit. And uh, what, uh, what did the federal circuit have to say when it was reasoning out its affirmance of that uh, summary judgment motion? Well, the federal circuit actually was faced with a summary judgment on two defenses. One was the district court found for first quality on both uh, what's called latches and, and uh, a, a different defense uh, called equitable estoppel. And uh, as to latches, it found there was a more than six-year delay in uh, filing suit. Uh, the Federal Circuit had previously held that that would lead to a presumption of latches. And uh, really all you needed to do under the case law to win on latches was show delay sometimes as little as two or three years, but six years would give you the presumption plus prejudice. And here the prejudice was more than a hundred million dollars, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars spent investing in this technology uh, during the period of delay. And so summary judgment based on federal circuits, uh, prior precedence and, and really more than a hundred years of, of law was, was a foregone conclusion. 
On the other defense, equitable estoppel, the Federal Circuit reversed summary judgment and said to the district court, you need to consider additional facts. You need to con- there may be a fact dispute. And that defense of equitable estoppel basically says that you misled, patent holder, you misled the defendant through your actions uh, into believing it would not be sued. And as to whether that happened, the, 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 the Federal Circuit said there's a, there a fact dispute. Um, but going back to the to the latches defense, the reason the Federal Circuit did even struggle with it, and the reason it was really a noteworthy case uh, as late as uh, as this was, was that the Supreme Court had sort of uh, indicated that latches may not be available in patent cases um, anymore, and and so they they struggled with that. Sure, tell me a bit more about that. I believe. Um, you're referring to a, a case that the Supreme Court had had dealt with in 2014 in, in the, uh, the copyright context, also dealing with latches and saying that latches did not apply in, in the case they were dealing with there? Yeah, that's right. This is, this is a, a case that got a lot of publicity because it's uh, it also eliminated latches as a defense to damages in copyright cases where uh, the the plaintiff has filed suit within three years of uh, of discovery of the infringement, which which uh, Petrella had done. Petrella, of course, she she, she was um, um, filing. Uh, she was the um, widow, I believe, uh, or the daughter. I'm sorry, the daughter of the author of the um, Raging Bull uh, screenplay and movie, and she sued MGM for another version of the of the. Uh, motion picture that they released through uh, video and uh, MGM defended on the grounds of latches because her her, uh, her lawsuit came years and years after um, the uh, alleged infringing activity had been started and, and discovered and she was only seeking damages for the last three years of of um, uh, of the infringement and the Supreme Court said we we're not going to allow latches to prevent a claim for damages when the plaintiff has done exactly what the statute allows, which is bring suit for the last three years of damages. Okay, and so that's, that does seem to sort of foreshadow the the result that comes in this case. It seems like the court sort of takes that um, construct and just applies it now in the uh, the patent context. What um, what was the majority's reasoning as to? as to why um, latches could not be used as a defense in this case? Well, the majority uh, essentially said th- this case is no different in principle than Petrella was uh, as to copyright cases. Uh, here you have a six-year statute of limitations, not a three-year statute of limitations. Uh, if a plaintiff files suit seeking damages for that six-year period, we're not going to allow latches to be used uh, to prevent um, recovery of those damages. Um, and and they said really for the same reasons that they said in Petrella, allowing judges to decide that a lawsuit was brought too late would, would really allow judges to override a legislative function. Congress has decided it is going to allow damages for that six-year period, and based on separation of powers principles, we're not going to allow 
judges to weigh the equities and decide whether, even though a plaintiff uh, complied with that six-year statute of limitations, uh, he's going to be barred from seeking relief. Justice Alito writing for the majority, he writes that it would be very unusual, or I think he said perhaps even unprecedented for a law like the law here, the Patent Act, to include both a statute of limitations and also to allow for the defense of latches since the two tend to do sort of the the same work, um, just preventing cases from being untimely and unfairly filed after a amount of time has passed. But in, in your column, you disagree on that that point. Why do you think that there is room in a statute like this, both for a statute of limitations like the one here and also the availability of latches as a, as a defense? I mean, first of all, let me let me say that for, for patent lawyers uh, who grew up in, in my generation, we we went to law school and understanding latches as a as a long uh, long available defense. It, it it's 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 been I mean, hundreds of you know literally 150 years of case law saying that latches is available as a defense, and and it is a little bit strange just from the perspective of a practitioner that um, the law as you've understood it for decades is upended. By a Supreme Court decision, where you know courts, lower courts, and the and the the, the court of uh, the Federal Circuit, which is the, the, really the, the the court that's been given responsibility for for bringing uniformity to patent law since 1985, when they have assumed and interpreted the case law, um, and you know interpreted the the will of Congress to to be that you 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 did not take that defense away. In 1952, the, the other thing that, again, just for practitioners, and I think for the federal circuit, you know, many of whom are former patent um, lawyers, it, it's difficult to to uh, digest. Is um, there was legislative history that confirmed that Congress intended really just to codify existing common law in 1952, and every single case that consider the question whether latches was available to bar damages held that it was. And, and, um, and, and the legislative history, uh, uh, part of it was, was the commentary of a patent lawyer who was very respected, who had been asked to help write the 1952 act. <clears throat> and he actually, his name was Federico. Uh, he was not only asked to help write, the act, but he was very much involved with the, with the House bill and commented on it and was asked to comment on it after the, the law passed. And he said the reason for, for the language in the, in, the, in the 1952 Act preserving certain defenses, including unenforceability, was to preserve defenses like latches. So uh, the idea that, yes, there was a six-year statute of limitations on, on damages, but, but there would still be Cases where a delay would have been unreasonable, uh, it wasn't inconsistent to practitioners. It didn't seem inconsistent to Federico, who was involved in writing the bill, uh, or to you know to judges who interpreted the cases. Um, I mean, interpreted the law for for years, and it's it's really only because it's come up at this point in in a case uh, where the Supreme Court looks at it for the first time that you know. Um, of course, what they say isn't uh, isn't uh, final because it's right. It's it's right because it's final. But 
it really upsets uh, a long uh, understood interpretation of patent law for many practitioners. The, the majority notes th the points that you make that there is case law um, prior to and after the passage of the act and there's some commentary and legislative history uh, attending mm -hmm. it that suggests what you say, um, that it was common practice and the act simply codified that practice. But why, uh, notwithstanding that, did the majority not feel persuaded by those indicia of you know, latches still being available? I think in some sense the majority is taking a very um, sort of textual, some would say originalist approach to the statute. The statute doesn't literally use the word latches. It doesn't say, the 1952 Act does not say we preserve latches as a defense. It says we preserve unenforceability as a defense. And um, to be consistent with Petrella, uh, Petrella uh, the Supreme Court said, well, we just look at the words of the statute. Here's a statute of limitations. They could have said we preserve latches as a defense. They chose not to do that. That really was essentially the analysis of the, of the court. Um, and, and then in turning to the case law, there was a long body of case law before the 1952 Act where the courts had said latches is available as a defense uh, to damages. And, and Congress would have been aware of that case law when it codified uh, common law, essentially, when it just, it, it, its purpose was expressly in the legislative history, just to preserve patent law as it had been developed by the courts. Congress would have known that latches was available as a defense when it, when it um, enacted the law, and yet um, the, the, the court wasn't impressed with that body of case law and one of the things that Justice Alito did was, even though there were many cases, he he really uh, took them um, into several categories and distinguished them in in essentially um, separate piles, and ultimately said there just weren't enough cases dealing with strictly um, damages issue in courts of law to persuade him that, or to persuade the court that when Congress enacted uh, the statute of limitations, uh, it intended to preserve latches without actually expressly saying it. Yeah. And Justice Breyer had a, had, a, had a response to that, which was um, taking all of these many cases and trying to distinguish them into different, into different categories is a little bit like a Phillies fan uh, after a 9 to uh, one loss saying, well, we lost, but, but not by that much because, uh, you know, every inning wasn't all that bad for us. Uh, I mean, the, the, the case law was really uniform in its understanding of what Congress had done in 1952. Yeah, as you say, Justice Breyer dissents here. He's the lone dissenter. Um, and he notes a few things. For one thing, um, he responds to the majority's point that the defense of latches is often used as a, as a gap filler. So maybe in instances where there there is no statute of limitations and there's no really other mechanism preventing suits being brought with unreasonable delay. Um, but Justice Breyer writes that there, even though the statute includes a, a limitations, um, statute of limitations, there remains a gap to be filled here by latches. What, um, what is he referring to when he refers to that gap that still could be filled? Well, uh, w what he's saying is 
that the statute of limitations in the 1952 Act for patents isn't a true statute of limitations. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't say you can only file suit uh, within six years from the time infringement started. It says you can only collect damages six years back from the time you filed suit. And so what that means is you, you could have a situation where a, a patent owner um, learns of a possible infringement in year one after the patent issues, but decides to wait for the 10th year after the patent issues, or maybe even the 15th year after the patent issues to bring a lawsuit. And um, if he wins, he can collect damages for the last six years before he filed the lawsuit. And so that's really the gap that Justice Breyer is talking about. Um, you can you can file a lawsuit many years after the patent issued, and while you may be barred from seeking an injunction, you you could still do that even under SCA. Uh, you can collect damages. Uh, there is no bar. There's no no longer a latches bar to say you waited too long to to bring this lawsuit, uh, and it might actually reward somebody for waiting. Um, to have to have a competitor or uh, an infringer uh, develop enough infringing, um, you know, product or, or or invest so much in the infringement that uh, you know that their much bigger damage claim is possible than if he just simply filed suit within a year or earlier um, when he found out about the the infringement. Is that letter? that you're talking about there, and Justice Breyer mentioned something called a, a lock-in problem that would be made worse if latches were discarded as a possible defense where uh, you know, a possible defendant is sort of locked into their practice. They made a substantial investment into what their potential infringing product. Um, is that what he's talking about when he says there's a, a lock-in problem? Right. That's right. That's, that's what Justice Breyer said is uh, technology can lock somebody in. Uh, if you adopt... Uh, a technology that's found to be infringing, you build all of your factories around it. You you develop uh, standards around it. Your your whole business is modeled around it. You you may not simply be able to rip all of those chips out and undo your factory and everything else you've done because somebody sues you for infringement. And he was trying to say it's this is why patent law is and should be treated differently than copyright law was treated in Petrella because. And copyright infringement requires that you actually have copied uh, someone's work. And patent infringement is a strict liability offense. You, you may unwittingly and many times without any knowledge uh, infringe somebody's patent. So Breyer is saying uh, the concern is someone could get locked in to an infringing technology and the, the patent owner could file a lawsuit in year 10 of the patent term collect damages from years four through 10, so six years. And then if the defendant is still locked into using that technology because it's so economically infeasible to switch to something else, the patent owner could bring another lawsuit um, in year 16 and collect damages for the last six years. And then perhaps bring another um, lawsuit, a third lawsuit in year 20 and collect the remaining damages. I mean, that sounds like an extreme scenario. You would think somebody would find a way to avoid infringement, but, but it proves the point that, um, 
without latches, you do, in a, in a sense, reward a plaintiff who delays bringing suit. Yeah, it, it does sound like there there are some different incentives and some different dynamics at play in a, in a patent suit as opposed to a copyright one, as you described them. But you also note in your column that the court has been um, reluctant as of late. There's been a, a theme where it will uh, consistently dismiss you know, having a, a specific rule for patents, um, carving out sp- specific rules uh, for, for patent cases. Um, and what other cases has the court done that? Why do you think it's inclined against uh, crafting rules that are specific to this area of, of litigation? Well, you know, as I mentioned, for many years, the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals was allowed by the Supreme Court to develop patent law based on its expertise in the area relatively uh, without uh, much criticism and relatively with a free hand. But in 2007, the uh, the Supreme Court uh, weighed in on an issue of uh, patentability, on what subject matter should be given a patent in the first place. Um, when it when it decided the KSR versus Teleflex case, and in KSR, KSR dealt with the question of what is obvious. You're not supposed to get a patent on something that's obvious, and, uh, and that's in the statute uh, for patentability. But um, the Federal Circuit had said it's not obvious unless it meets a very specific test that we are going to articulate, called the teaching suggestion motivation test, meaning you have to find some teaching or suggestion or motivation in the prior knowledge and prior art to combine things together in a way that would have made the invention obvious. And without it, the Federal Circuit would say the patent is not obvious. The Supreme Court in 2007 said, this is, some, this is a rigid, inflexible rule that we can't find anywhere in the statute or anywhere in Supreme Court precedent, and we're going to reject it. And that was, in a sense, the beginning for other um, other review and other criticism of federal circuits uh, or F- federal circuit decisions, where a test had been adopted that didn't find any support in the statute or in case law. Another example um, was more recently in 2014, uh, Octane Fitness uh, dealt with attorneys' fees that are awarded in patent cases. Um, in uh, exceptional cases, and the Federal Circuit had developed a two-part test, making it very, very difficult to obtain attorney's fees. You have to find both objective and subjective unreasonableness, and if the Supreme Court said, we don't find that test anywhere in the statute, and uh, we, we reject it. And then uh, last year, in another case called Halo Electronics, uh, the Federal Circuit had developed a test for willful infringement. Again, a, a sort of a rigid and mechanical two-part test uh, that required that you show that the, the, the uh, infringer was acting um, unreasonably based on any objective measure. And the Supreme Court rejected that, again, saying, this is just a, a test developed out of whole cloth, and we will reject it. So... What happened in SCA is is consistent with a theme where the Supreme Court has tended to scrutinize the Federal Circuit's decisions to see whether they are consistent with language that 
that they can find in a statute or with other Supreme Court precedent. It sounds like, though, from your, your column that you think this is an area of law that could merit its its own particular rules or its own tests. Um, why, why, why do you think so? Well, I think patent law is, is an area where having uh, experience with the ramifications of, of a court's rulings are, is, is really valuable. And that's really why the Federal Circuit exists. Um, any appeal uh, in a patent case or in a case that has any patent component has to go to the Federal Circuit for a reason, because there are just so many rules that are particular to patent law. And you, you sometimes don't know what the consequences are of changing the rules on, 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 on a whole body of law. Now, it, it, it sure has come under some criticism in recent years because there are things that have not gone so well in patent law, including a lot of abusive litigation. And, and the Supreme Court certainly has been looking at ways of, of, of uh, dealing with that as well. But I think there's no question patent law is different from copyright law. And this issue of latches in particular, I mean, now we have the rule damages, uh, there's no bar for, for damages, uh, simply because a plaintiff delays filing suit no matter how long. Um, but, but it is, it is, uh, still an area where having, uh, a lot of experience in how these rules can affect, uh, litigants, uh, would be helpful to the courts. Okay. Maybe last one that, as you describe it, this case is sort of a, a change course when it comes to the ways in which defendants can defend a patent infringement action. So what, uh, what, what are sort of the most important takeaways that a, say a company who might face patent litigation would, would need to know and the attorneys advising them would, would need to know after this case? I think th- this decision really highlights the need to be proactive. And what that means is if you are aware of a potential threat of an infringement lawsuit, Certainly, if, if somebody has sent you a cease and desist letter, uh, you shouldn't bury your head in the sand and assume because the patent owner hasn't filed suit, he never will. And that's especially true if your defenses are going to be based on things where evidence could be lost. Let's say, hypothetically, let's say you, you, are, uh, you are sure you cannot be liable for patent infringement because you have two employees who actually designed your technology themselves and they did it before the patent owner uh, filed his patent application, maybe long before. Well, if those employees leave your company, uh, maybe they retire, maybe they die, and and a lawsuit is filed after that happens, your defense is now gone because your, your evidence supporting that defense may be gone. So sometimes it's, it's going to be important to, to document your, um, your defenses, even if you're not being sued, to make sure you have your defenses available and stored and saved for a rainy day. And, um, and in some cases, you may even want to take the bull by the horns and say, we don't infringe or this patent is invalid. We, we have the evidence right now to establish that. And we're going to establish it now by by seeking uh, an, a review, an inter-parties review of the patent, or just going to the, the patent owner and saying, if you don't give us a, le- a license now, we're going to uh, invalidate your patent. 
And there, there are other considerations that come into play, of course, including cost. But certainly if someone's about to make a huge investment in technology and there, there are potentially patents out there, uh, it's it's no longer a good idea if it ever was to uh, to just um, tr- you know treat uh, silence uh, as an indication that there's never going to be a lawsuit. Sometimes you just have to um, be more proactive and make sure you clear any potential issues. Okay. Well, it certainly sounds like a lot for for patent attorneys to have in mind uh, after this ruling from the Supreme Court. Mr. Ben Davidson, really appreciate you taking the time to to chat with us about it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. that, our program for April 14th, 2017 is complete. Thanks once more to Adam Hoffman and Ben Davidson. Thank you as well for tuning in. Much appreciated. Don't forget, an hour of CLE credit can be yours. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <music>